Welcome to It's the Economy, Stupid Podcast. A podcast giving you the latest in economic news from the stock market to legislation. Now, here's your host, Dr. Carlos. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Today, we're going to be studying behavioral finance. That's right, where psychology and economics meet. Who do we have with us today? Dr. Hirsch Schaeffer, and he holds Mario L. Bellotti Chair in Finance at the Levy School of Business at Santa Clara University. He's also the author of this great book, Beyond Greed and Fear. Highly recommended. I enjoyed reading it very much. Let's welcome to the circle Dr. Schaeffer, and how are you? Hello. Thank you so much, Carlos. I'm happy to be with you. This is a fun topic. We're, we're entering the world of economics and psychology, which a lot of people don't think they uh, work together very much. Um, I know some of the, uh, the uh, how would you say, old-time economists still adhere to the modern portfolio theory, and they think it's, everything works out logically, and everybody makes logical decisions. But before we get to all that, uh, what is behavioral finance? Behavioral finance is the study of how psychology impacts finance, financial decision-making, and financial markets. That's sort of it in a nutshell. That was easy enough. So are we now we're going to try to explore it from a lot of different angles, but before we do that as well, does behavioral finance it applies not only to individuals, correct? It also applies to institutional investors, all sorts of people involved in finance? It does. It, it applies really across the entire financial landscape. It's, it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Of course, it also, the same psychological forces that impact people when they make financial decisions, whether they are individuals or, or professionals, also impacts the decisions that they make in, in other aspects of their life. It really, the same psychological issues permeate the entire decision-making making landscape. But behavioral finance focuses particularly on, on financial decision-making. So it affects the mom and dad at home, but it can also affect Jamie Dimon then. It does. Uh, I would I would say I've seen lots of moms and dads <laughs> impacted by these issues, and for sure Jamie Dimon. <laughs> so why don't financial decision-making models, or at least the older ones for sure, consider human nature? A lot of them thought, well, Carlos is just going to do the rational decision here. He's going to be a utilitarian at best. This is the best one for me. I'm taking this away. But we don't do that. What's going on here? Yeah, so, so short, short history lesson. Uh, Adam Smith in the 1750s uh, looked at human decision-making from a psychological perspective, and this was really before either psychology or economics was a separate discipline from, were separate disciplines from philosophy. He was a, a moral philosopher. And uh, he wrote this book, Theory of Moral Sentiments, where he brought to our attention uh, certain issues about internal conflicts within, within our minds. And then he wrote Wealth of Nations, which really spawned economics as a profession. I will tell you that, looking ahead a couple of hundred years, uh, John Maynard Keynes wrote about the importance of psychology to financial decision-making on the part of both investors and, and corporate managers. He used this word psychology many times in his classic 1936 book, Theory of uh, 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 Interest in Money. And uh, those perspectives somehow diminished as economists in the post-World War II era decided they wanted to make economics 
in the same model or mode as physics. They wanted to mathematize it. I came out of this tradition. I came out of mathematics and physics as a, as a background. And I have to admit, that idea too intrigued me. And when you do that, the equations that physics suggests that you focus on are maximizing equations. And so the idea of maximizing as a modeling discipline and people seeking the best means to the ends they've identified them for themselves, which is how neoclassical economists interpret the concept of rationality, those two things came together. And economists convinced themselves that they could put a framework in place that somehow encapsulated underlying psychology uh, within a maximizing framework. And that led them to focus on how well we could explain behavior by simply assuming that people are, are, are fully or perfectly rational. And as a result, all the psychology that Keynes had emphasized we, we need to look at and, and examine and incorporate into our thinking, that just kind of went by the wayside from the perspective of, of the modern economics tradition. And only in the last few decades, as psychologists have worked on models that economists could understand, uh, has psychology been coming back into, into economics and, and finance. But I think that you know the dominant paradigm has been what happened after World War II, as far as economics has been concerned, finance has been concerned, and so we, we still are firmly rooted in many parts of, of finance and economics with this non-psychological uh, perspective. I'm happy to say that's changing, but you know it's, it's changing slowly. Yeah, it seems like it is starting to make a dent out there. I can see in some of the companies, larger ones like Merrill Lynch and Allianz, stuff like that are starting to change their format a little bit. Um, we're going to start exploring the psychological aspect here a little bit more. So... When you were, we were talking about means to an end, we, we talked a little bit about utilitarian theory. Does perception play a big part in this, how we perceive things? Oh, yes, ab absolutely. Uh, so uh, the nomenclature, the jargon, if you like, for, for perception uh, is framing. How we frame our decisions or how we frame the information that, that we look at. Because how we frame it, uh, impacts the way that our minds process that information, the way that the signals that come into our brain are coded and interpreted and structured as waiting mechanisms. So whether our minds give a lot of attention to something or just a little bit of attention to something, whether they treat it as a positive or a negative, all of that has to do with the way that we perceive the world. So perception is front and center in terms of in terms of being important. Um, Daniel Kahneman, e economics Nobel Prize winner from 2002, psychologist, not an economist, and his late uh, co-author and colleague and best friend Amos Tversky, they told us back in the 1970s that how we perceive financial bets in terms of what we think is a gain, what we think is a loss, that really influences what kinds of decisions that we make, whether we're prone to seek risk or avoid risk. You can take the same underlying data if you get one person to frame it by over-focusing on losses and another person to look at the same situation but perceive 
the importance of the gains, they might take totally different decisions when they face with the same when they face the same underlying data simply because their minds perceive the data in different ways. Sounds like Dr. Sheffer, you're telling me human nature is complex. Very complex. <laughs> I want to make it even more complex is a lot of that perception, I think, personally, is affected a lot by unconscious factors, our past relationships, associations, experiences. You can even throw in evolutionary adaptations in there, and that can really alter that perception game quite a bit. Uh, there's, yeah, there's no question about it. You know, we so our, our minds evolve slowly. You know, human beings evolve slowly. Um, we're a species that's, you know, been around for really a very long time, modern history, civilization, you know, last like 5,000 years or 3,000 years, um, that's just a tiny dent in how long we've been evolved, been around. And we've evolved. Humans have, have evolved um, uh, to, you know, adapt to underlying circumstances. And the modern world, um, you know, really... We, you know, in terms of the information age, um, you can or the industrial revolution. I mean, that was like a, a minute ago relative to just how long we've been around. So our minds are still structured to adapt to a much more primitive type of environment, and now have to deal with the complexities of the real world in in ways that are different from our earlier hunter-gatherer experience. And so we bring a lot of baggage with us. So I like I like to suggest that we think of our minds kind of like software that's been developed by I won't mention what company, but a company that builds operating systems. They're always giving us patches, and that's because our minds are like that software. We never go back and rebuild it from the beginning as our environment changes. We're always adapting to it. We always need patches. So we're one patch layered on top of another patch, layered on top of another patch. That's the way human brains have, have, have evolved. And so we're always dealing with misadaptations for older environments because what used to work in the old environment isn't as strong today, and we're always trying to do workarounds in our heads in order to deal with, with the modern world. Hello, my name's Matt, and I'm an addict. My mom was addicted to prescription pills when I was very young, before I even turned one. Are you or someone you know struggling with alcohol or drug addiction? Has everyone given up on you or your loved one? The caring staff at Elite Care understands and treats you as a whole person. We offer individual and group therapy, holistic healing such as yoga, nutrition, and spirituality, medication management, and PTSD treatment. By building upon your strengths and rebuilding broken bonds, we help you begin a successful life. With our staff of licensed psychotherapists and doctors, you can be assured of the highest level of care. Elite Care is the best option for long-term rehabilitation from drugs and alcohol. Contact 888-511-0607 for more information. That's a great way to explain it. 
We're going to go back a little bit to what you mentioned, jargon, and this is one of the jargons I know I think lives more in behavioral finance than psychology, but they have similar, I think it is a similar cousin in psychology, but what are some of the common biases? We, we have heard this comment a lot, biases, cognitive biases, systematic errors, I think is another simile, and then you also have, um, uh, well, we'll start with those two, my mind's disappeared for now. So what, what happened to those, what are those things? All right, so, so these are actually loaded terms. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of explain why. Um, it goes back to the last question you asked me and, and one of the earlier questions that you asked me. So a bias is a predisposition to make a mistake. And we, and we need some kind of a, a reference framework to understand what the mistake is relative to. So typically, we think of a mistake as being relative to that perfectly rational maximizing model. So if, if, you, if a person behaves in a way that's different when they make a judgment, when they sort of make a prediction, when they assess some, whether something's good or not so good, when that judgment is... is um, problematic relative to what a fully rational person would do. We call that an, an error. And a predisposition towards making a particular type of error, not any type of mistake, but a specific type of mistake, that, that's what a bias is. And so psychologists in, in the last, oh, I would say 50 years probably, have been developing a school of thought called the heuristics and biases approach that identify specific biases to which we are prone and mostly points to our reliance on rules of thumb to which we give the fancy name heuristics uh, as the source of these biases. And so the argument goes that because we're not fully rational, because we're imperfect, we rely on simple rules of thumb for, to make decisions. And because the rules of thumb are overly simplified relative to the more complex real world we confront, we're predisposing ourselves to making these mistakes. So that is what a, a bias is in, in a nutshell. It's a predisposition to make a mistake that a perfectly rational person would not do. Let me ask you, can you give us an example? I know one of the examples that pops in my head is a hindsight bias. Or right. Yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll do hindsight bias. So uh, hindsight bias is the tendency to look at something that's happened, usually an, an outcome that, that's been unfavorable, not so good, and to think that, hmm, you know, looking at it in, in hindsight, Surely it's obvious it was going to turn out that way. The bias is that people, when they look back in time, assess that what has actually happened is almost inevitable relative to how they perceived the situation before. So when they try to think, when I go back in time and try and imagine what the risk was, they think to themselves that they misjudged the risk that this would happen. So, for example, when we look at the financial crisis, so we look back and we see everything that was taking place in the mortgage market uh, at the time, the market for 
for pooled securities, for mortgage-backed securities, for CDOs, CDSs, all of it that looks like we were just setting ourselves up for an absolute catastrophe. It was obvious where this, this whole house of cards was going to crash on us. Well, if you actually go back and look at what most experts were saying back in 2006, 2007, and early 2008, hardly anybody predicted we were going to have a financial crisis on the order we actually experienced it. It was not obvious in foresight. In hindsight, our minds misinterpret the data to suggest it should have been obvious. But that's a bias. That's a bias. The nature of financial crises are that until they actually happen, the signals are not as strong as we as we as we think they are. And the number of people who warn about an impending crisis is much lower than the number of people who say it was obvious once it actually happens. It almost sounds like we're downplaying it or minimizing the, the brevity of the situation. You know, uh, so one of the things that I've sort of learned is that the nature of financial crises are they're much harder pre- to predict than we think they are. So I was going to ask you when the next one is. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just we just hope um, it's it's sort of like I'll, I'll use an analogy. It's like the way that young kids drive, and especially if they drive and text at the same time or drink. They don't always wind up crashing into a tree at 2 a.m. in the morning, but they increase the odds it's going to happen. Predicting when it's going to happen, that's really difficult. So, so when it happens, you'll look back and say, oh, it was obvious. You know, that kind of behavior is going to lead to, to a problem. But predicting when it's going to happen isn't so easy. All you can do is say the odds are higher. Hindsight bias is saying that when it actually happens, the probability that it was going to happen and the way it actually happened was much higher than it looked before the actual event itself. We have about five or six minutes, and I do have a home run question. I didn't prep you for that. The home run question is always a trick question. (laughs) We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, Can you briefly tell us, your book says Beyond Greed and Fear. So it seems to me that these two emotions are really prominent in the world of investment making. Um, can you give us a little brief explanation of how they impact our investment decisions? Sure. So the fear and the greed are emotions that are normal that we that we have within us, and uh, that drive really our risk taking behavior. So when they are excessive, when we overweight one or the other, then we will tend to skew our decisions to satisfy underlying needs. So if I have a need to suppress the degree of fear that I feel, I'll be inclined to build my, for example, if I'm an investor, I'll build my portfolio to have lots of safe securities, or at least securities that I think are safe. On the other hand, if my strong emotion is to have lots of upside because I really want very high returns, and I'm willing, therefore, to take a chance you know, to risk that I won't have them, I'll load up on securities that, that offer me lots of upside potential, a, a chance. 
Um, greed, so one of the things I suggest in the book that greed is a bit of a misnomer for what we really are looking at. What we're really looking at is strong hope. Greed is sort of wanting more than your fair share. It's a little bit of a different emotion, although you can be greedy and hopeful at the same time. But, but investors who really want lots of upside, they don't really have to be greedy. They just have to be very, very strong in hope, where they set themselves very high aspirations for what defines success for them, and they attach great importance to being successful. And so when you build your portfolio, how you build it is typically to try and find ways to satisfy your underlying psychological needs. And that might mean that you look a little bit, um, shall I say, like you are have a split personality. Part of your portfolio might be built to give you, to satisfy a lot of fear, so you have a lot of safe securities. And if you have very strong hope, you may have sort of a flat middle, not much in the way of moderately risky securities, but a lot of high risk securities. And so a lot of people, for example, have, you know, spend a lot of money on lottery tickets. Uh, if you, you know, the big surprise when you look, for example, the state of Massachusetts, where lottery purchases are very high, is that the average expenditure per household in the state of Massachusetts on lottery tickets is about eighteen hundred dollars. Eighteen hundred? Big surprise, huh? Wow, that is. Okay, so so the so that those lottery tickets are satisfying a very very strong need. For people to change their lifestyle and the only way they can do it is by taking a very high risk bet that you know the lottery will pay off for them that's a big bet all right <laughs> anyway you ready for your home run uh, your fastball question all right all right so behavioral finance we understand it much better now thanks to you we have a good grasp of it which political ideology is closest to it. The Republicans believe, a lot of them, believe in supply side. Uh, some say the Democrats believe in the demand side. I'm not sure where the libertarians fall on this, but yeah, we'll go with Mises on this one for them. Um, where do you think it fits in best? And this is not a reflection of your political leaning either. But. Right. Um, well, let me, let me answer that by, by sort of relating behavioral finance to all three. So, if you're uh, if you're Republican leaning, typically you will have a stronger conviction that markets work. And what that typically means is that there's a tendency to downplay the the, the relevance of the underlying uh, biases that exist. That somehow market discipline will induce people to want to avoid mistakes. And so they will take personal responsibility for not making mistakes. The incentives provided by the markets will, will induce them to, to minimize the kind of mistakes that they make. So that's the Republican perspective, I think. Or at least the, a connection between Republican philosophy and, uh, and behavioral finance. The Democrats say, you know, people are sort of born with these predispositions towards bias. 
And it's government's responsibility to provide mechanisms to, to offset or do workarounds people's mistakes so that government takes a paternalistic role in helping uh, people to uh, achieve outcomes that wouldn't happen if we left them to their own devices. The libertarian school says it's important to give people liberty and not to infringe on those liberties. And those liberties include making your own mistakes. So the, the libertarian perspective is one where we sort of respect agents autonomy to make the decisions that they make, no matter how those decisions uh, turn out. So there's a, a school of thought called libertarian paternalism that tries to blend you know, these perspectives together. And it says, if what you want to do is to respect people's decisions, a decision-making authority, then look for a choice architecture. This is coming back to your question earlier, Carlos, about perception. Try and structure the architecture of the decision tasks that they make so that they're more inclined to make a sensible decision when they're making that decision on their own than one that makes them more vulnerable to their susceptibility to biases, their susceptibility towards making mistakes. And in that way, you'll respect their ability to make the decision, but you'll be paternalistic in terms of the way that you set up their thought processes. <laughs> that is a brilliant answer. It's got to be one of the best fastball question answers I've ever heard. <laughs> that was really good. Thank you so much again, Dr. Sheffman, for being on The Circle. We truly appreciate it. Thank you, everyone, for joining us as well. Once more, before we go, Beyond Greed and Fear, Dr. Sheffrin, that's S-H-E-F-R-I-N. You definitely want to get the book if you want to learn more about how to make proper investment decisions, even learn more about how you think. Remember, our motto is simple. Wherever there's psychology involved, even in the invisible hand of the market, we are there. We'll see you next time, everyone. That was great. Thank you so much, Dr. Sheffrin. Uh, pleasure. And also catch our web TV show, Circle of Insight, on TherapyCable.com.